I don't know what's real. I don't know what's not real. Limited Capacity is a collection of six darkly amusing stories about the mysterious ways we interact with the internet and with each other. There's something going on with him. It's like an act. I don't trust him. What? You're staring at me like I should say something, but I don't really know what to do here. That's the whole name of the game. Don't talk about how the town isn't real. Do you understand? Limited Capacity. Available now on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Hey, it's Michelle Parisi here. It's been a while since I popped into your ears, but today I've got something fun to share. It's an episode from another podcast I produce, and that's hosted by Duncan McHugh. That's me. There he is. There I am. Why don't you tell them what our new podcast is? It's called Hell of a Story, and it is the very best of Canadian audio docs and storytelling. That's it. That's the best you can do? <laughs> I'm trying. <laughs> it, they're really good stories. They really are. We love, you and I both love making documentaries, and this is our space to share great docs with you. It is, and just great stories in general. You are a really wonderful storyteller. Miigwech, thank you. So are you. Sure am. <laughs> Should we share an episode with them? Oh, this is a great one. It's all about love. It's all about the power of saying yes. It's all about taking a leap. These are all things everyone knows that I am a sucker for, as are you, which people might not know. <laughs> Enough about us, though, right? <laughs> Enough about us. <laughs> okay. From our new podcast, Hell of a Story, this is episode four, Yes is the Answer. I'm a sucker for a love story, and here's a good one I just heard. It happened one autumn day in 1966. Yoko Ono, the avant-garde artist, had a show in London. John Lennon was there, the most famous musician on the planet. More popular than Jesus, he once joked. So she's showing all this strange and weird and unusual art, but one piece really caught his attention. It was a ladder standing in the middle of the gallery and way up above on the ceiling was a canvas it had a word on it a word so small that you needed a magnifying glass to see it and in tiny little letters it said yes it gave him hope it made him curious and that's how john and yoko met there are some different versions of their first encounter and how they fell in love but I like this one because so often in life when opportunities arise that take us out of our comfort zone, it's way easier to say no. But what if when we face something unexpected, we lean into the fear and take a leap and say yes. I'm Duncan McHugh. This is a hell of a story. This is the sound of the 14th Street subway station in New York City, which is an ordinary enough place. But one day, something extraordinary happened there that changed the course of three people's lives. The CBC's McKenna Hadley-Burke brings us the story. So we met in the summer of 1997. 
We actually sort of knew of each other for a couple of months before we officially actually spoke to each other. Danny had a mutual friend uh, that played on the same softball team as I did that summer. At the beginning of July, Danny was sort of hanging around the team, but never really noticed that he was there. And one day after a softball game, we were at our sponsor bar down in the West Village in New York City um, called The Dugout. And I was looking over songs on the jukebox and Danny came over to me and said, can I, can I buy you a drink? And I said, well, I'm not drinking. I'm getting over a bad cold. So he walked away. And about two minutes later, he came back with a bottled water. I had ended a five-year relationship, so I really wasn't looking to start anything new. But the more I hung around uh, Pete and the softball team, the more I was interested. So this particular night, I just thought I would, you know, be more forward. And so then we started talking about what songs I was putting in the jukebox, and we chatted about that for a while. And he got me another bottle of water as the night went on, and then another bottle of water. And so he was matching my bottle of waters (laughs) with, with vodka drinks. One of us was getting a little drunk and the other one was stone cold uh, sober and it was turning into an an interesting night. And Danny had come down to the softball games and to the bar on rollerblades. I was rollerblading all over the city. I said to him, I said, you're in no shape to rollerblade home. We'll get you in a cab or something. This was like late in the night. We got out and I said, I think before you hop in a cab, I think you need to walk for a little bit. So my apartment was close by. So I said, why don't you walk me to my apartment and you know, we can put you in a cab from there. And he ended up coming up and, and spending the night and we've been together ever since. Early on and, and all through our relationship, and you know, we never discussed family or kids or anything like that. That was just so far removed from our thoughts. In late 1999, I had started a small off-off-Broadway nonprofit theater company, and we had done our first show in March, and it had done really well. I was hoping that I would build a theater company, and so that was a sort of a dream of mine. Another thing that was going on at the time was Danny and I were very involved in my sister had gotten the nomination from the Democratic Party to run for the U.S. House of Representatives in New Jersey's 5th District. I was one of her campaign managers and campaign advisors, Those two things were really the forefront of our minds in 2000. How can I get the theater company off the ground? And if my sister happened to pull it off somehow, would we maybe move to Washington and be involved in her congressional team? So that was what our future looked like at that moment in the summer of 2000. And so it just made sense that um, we ended up moving in together and Pete also had a roommate so there was three of us living in this you know one bedroom apartment you know I would go up occasionally to my my apartment that was the arrangement I had with the person that was subletting my apartment so I would go up just periodically to check in and get my stuff so on that night Pete and I had made arrangements to have dinner uh, we had a dinner date at probably like 7:30 I'm guessing I had left work late so I was rushing to make sure I wasn't going to be later than usual. I left the apartment and this apartment's up in Harlem. So I was getting on the local train, which was the C there, uh, to the stop in Chelsea, which is the, the 14th Street station. When I get out, I always would get out on the 
on a, one of the side entrances, which is at 15th Street. It was the closest one to Pete's apartment. And this particular night, I'm walking in my usual route, going through the station. I'm exiting through the turnstile. I look to my left on the ground against the wall is this bundle. And I happened to see uh, like two legs sticking out of this bundle that was wrapped up. And I'm thinking, oh, it's a, it's a doll. You know, some little girl left her doll on the ground. And I'm just, you know, it looks so realistic to me. And so I'm thinking, oh, it's one of those realistic dolls. I'm going up the steps and I glance back one more time right before I get up to the top. And that's when his legs move. So I knew it wasn't a doll and I rushed down. I loosened the sweatshirt that he was wrapped up in, made sure he was breathing okay. And when I did that, I could also tell that he appeared to be a newborn because he had his umbilical cord still partially intact. I was in shock. I couldn't believe it. It was like, how is there a baby on the ground here? So I immediately tried to alert others that might be going through the station. And, and at this time, it was probably about eight o'clock. There, you know, it was past the rush hour. There weren't a lot of people walking through. And I was hoping that somebody could alert the, the attendant to call the police. And I couldn't get anybody's attention except for this one woman who I called over and she couldn't speak any English, so I couldn't really communicate with her, although I was pointing to the ground and pointing to the baby and hoping that she would understand, but that she just backed away and left really quickly. I wasn't sure if he had been injured in any way, and I didn't want to cause any further harm, so I didn't pick him up. Then I'm thinking, I've got to call the police. This is before we had cell phones, but I knew that there was a payphone up on the street just above where the subway was, so I, I ran up the steps, I called 911. I said, I found a baby, and I told them exactly where I was, and then I, I ran back down the steps to be with the baby. And um, I just stayed with him, which felt like, it felt like hours, but obviously it wasn't. It was just a matter of minutes, but I'm thinking, you know, time is standing still for me, and I'm thinking that, oh, they probably thought this was a prank call. That's why they're not coming. So I need to find somebody else to call, and then I thought of Pete. So I had a quarter in my pocket, and I ran back upstairs to the payphone, and that's when I called Pete and I blurted out, I found a baby. And so when I picked up the phone and the first thing I heard was I found a baby in his real panicked tone, I knew that something serious was going on. And I think I... I said, what did you say? And I think he repeated it again. And, and then he started saying where, you know, that he called 911 and, and that I need to call. And I said, where are you? Where are you? Where are you? And he said he was at 15th Street and 8th Avenue Subway. So that was just a block away from the apartment. So I told him I would, you know, just run down there and um, try to find help on the street. You know, police car or police officers that, you know, were on patrol or something. And I bolted out of the apartment, uh, ran down the block. And I saw the flashing lights of the police cars in the distance. And I realized that, you know, they had shown up. Danny was standing at the top of the steps. And I said, where's the baby? And he just sort of turned and looked down the subway steps. And just at that moment, uh, two police officers were um, carrying the baby up the stairs. And it was totally surreal and unreal. And, you know, he really did find this real baby in, in the subway and just goosebumps everywhere all over me. And... They called for an ambulance and they were waiting for the ambulance to arrive. And so they were just standing right in front of Danny and me 
And so we had this front row seat to this little miracle. You know, while there was this nervous energy and tension around because of what had happened, the baby just sort of yawned like nothing was going on around him. And eventually they just didn't wait any longer for an ambulance to come and they put him in the back of the police car and drove to the hospital themselves. Danny had to stick around for like two hours or so because uh, he kept getting interviewed by one police officer after another. I think I said to him at one point, I said, you know, I think you're going to be connected to this baby for the rest of your life. And by extension, me. If the baby was going to be in his life, the baby would be in my life too. But we begin with breaking news in Manhattan. The search is on for the mother of a newborn baby boy found on a Manhattan subway platform. A newborn who was abandoned. A passerby spotted the baby last night at the 14th Street station in Manhattan. Tonight, as police search for the parents of an abandoned baby, we're hearing for the first time from the man who found the child at a subway station in Chelsea. I rushed over to him. I loosened the cloth that was wrapped around his head. Uh, make sure he was breathing all right. He appeared to be in good condition. The newborn was just hours old when Stewart found him. The baby is in good condition at St. Vincent's Hospital. I did try to find out more information. I contacted the pediatric social worker. She said, you know, I can't share any information with you, but I will say that he's doing okay. All of our friends and acquaintance and family knew of the story, and so we would find ourselves retelling it time and time and time again. But that was the extent of it. We did go on with our lives. About six weeks later, I get a call from the attorney with the Administration for Children's Services, and this is the, the New York City Child Welfare Agency. And she tells me, so I've been looking for you. We have a, a hearing, and we would love for you to come in to provide a testimony. And I go to the court, and by this time, it's the beginning of December. I provide my testimony, and then the judge asked if I wouldn't mind remaining for the rest of the hearing. The, the two police officers provided their testimony of when they showed up, and then she uh, turns to me and she says, Mr. Stewart, I wanna let you know what's happening in situations where we have a baby that's been abandoned. We wanna place that baby in pre-adoptive foster care as quickly as possible. And I'm thinking to myself, well, that makes sense. And the next thing out of her mouth was, would you be interested in adopting this baby? And of course, all the eyes in the courtroom were on me. And I said, but I don't think it's that easy. To which she replied with a smile and a little chuckle, well, it can be. With everything lining up the way it did, it's like, I, I don't know what, what it would you call it fate or destiny or divine intervention or just something greater than my control, but it just seemed like that was the compelling reason why I just said, okay, yes. And then the next thing I know, and everything kind of began to swirl out of control. Um, when she started giving out court orders to do an expedited home study and to do a background check and all of these things like, and then I'm thinking, what, what just happened? I left the courtroom and I'm going to get on the train to go back to work and there's a payphone on the platform. So I call Pete. And he said, you'll never guess what the judge just asked me. She asked me if I was interested in adopting the baby. And I said, what? And just at that moment, 
I could hear on the other end a train roaring into the station, and then Danny says, "My train's here. I gotta, I gotta get on the train. My train's here." I said, "No, no, no! Don't, don't get on the train. You, you go back to the courtroom and tell her no. We're not ready. You're not ready. Tell her no. You misspoke." And、uh, he just hung up the phone. I didn't want my life to change at all at that point in time. We had discussions for about a week,、um, pretty heated, some heated discussions. And you know, finally, I think Danny had just sort of had enough of me wavering, and just come home from work one night and just said to me, "I'm going to follow through with this, whether you're on board or not." And so, of course, I said, "Well, you're choosing a, a baby over our relationship." And he said, "I'm not choosing a baby over a relationship because I would love for you to do this with me,、um, but if you're not ready, I understand." And I said something really snarky and and mean, which was.、Um, Well, good luck being a single parent in New York City. And then I stormed out of the apartment and went into the cold December air to cool off again. And when I got back, there was calm Danny sitting on the edge of the bed, ready to pick up our conversation when we left off. And he basically just said, "Fate is giving us this child. How can how can we say no?" They set up a time for me to go visit the baby, and I would love for you to come with me. There was always, and I think Danny knew this, and that's why he was very patient with me. There was always something in the back of my head. That wanted to do this so badly, so I agreed to go with him to visit the baby. You know, we got up there. The caseworker was going over some paperwork with the foster mom, and she turned around at one point and asked Danny if he would like to hold the baby. And I'll never forget this moment to see them, Danny, holding this child, was just such a thing of beauty. And so powerful, and then Danny leaned in a little bit and said to him, "Remember me." But then shortly after that, he said, "Now it's your turn." Put my arms out to take the baby from him, and、um, I had a what I guess you would call a transformative moment with the baby in 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 my arms. Danny took out the Polaroid camera. I had taken <laughs> a picture of him with the baby with our Polaroid camera, and he he took a picture of me with the baby with our Polaroid camera. When we left, we told the caseworker we were going to move ahead. Pete asked, "Have you thought about a name?" I said, "I've always liked the name Devon," and he said, "Wow, would you mind changing the D to a K and make it Kevin?" He shared the story of his mother, who had had a child before Pete, who had died at birth, and that baby that his parents had. Was to be named Kevin. When I told him the reason why that name was really important to me, he was like, "Of course, of course, his name is Kevin." We go to court on Wednesday, December twentieth, to state our intentions. We tell the judge we'd like to adopt this baby, and the judge looked down at her calendar. She smiled, and she said, "Well, how would you like him for a holiday visit?" I think we just nodded our heads, like, "Yeah, okay." And she said, "That's that's wonderful." And then she started telling the caseworker and the attorneys to have the baby ready to be picked up from the foster care agency Friday morning. We are in court on Wednesday, and we're getting a child on Friday. All of my siblings and、uh, other relatives went out and got everything we could possibly need. Cribs, diapers, burpees, bottles, toys, car seat, stroller, everything. 
That was a little bit of relief because Danny and I were panicking about how do you take care of a baby? So we went to Barnes and Noble <laughs> and to the parenting aisle and took out a bunch of books and put them on the floor and, and started pouring through them. And we settled on two books. We settled on getting the baby book and what to expect when you're expecting. And we read, we were just reading them all afternoon on Thursday into Thursday night. And I don't think we ever looked at them ever again. You know, we picked him up from the foster care agency. He was brought back to the room that we were waiting in, which was the nurse's room. And it was really, really special. We really did have our first moment alone with him in that room. And and then we just sort of looked at each other as like, is this happening? Like we were still in disbelief. We didn't have anything to carry him in from the foster care agency, so we carried him in our arms. We bundled him up in some clothes and a blanket. It was cold outside. And we were walking down the street and we thought, well, let's take a cab. And then we thought, no, let's not take a cab. Let's take the subway home. And, you know, as we're walking to the subway station, there's flurries. It was just sort of like this magical moment. Like we just got a new son, bringing home for Christmas. And now it's sort of snowing. With Kevin, we just knew that the truth was always uh, the best route to go. And anybody asked us about his story, we would tell the story right in front of him. We would not shy away from talking about it in front of him. Um, we, we wanted him to know um, from a very early age. We felt like by default we were married because of Kevin. We didn't feel like we needed to be married. We were really grateful for the right and we you know, wrote letters and marches and volunteered to recognize that same-sex people should have the right to marry. But um, we weren't one of those people that were like... Hello, I'm Jess Milton. For 15 years, I produced The Vinyl Cafe with the late, great Stuart McLean. Every week, more than 2 million people tuned in to hear funny, fictional, feel-good stories about Dave and his family. We're excited to welcome you back to the warm and welcoming world of The Vinyl Cafe with our new podcast, Backstage at The Vinyl Cafe. Each week, we'll share two hilarious stories by Stuart. And for the first time ever, I'll tell you what it was like behind the scenes. Subscribe for free wherever you get your podcasts. Like, well, we're going to jump in on and do this the second it becomes legal. You know, on a walk to school, I just asked Kevin after it passed, I said, what do you think? You think your dad and I should get married? And he said, yeah, yeah, I think you should get married. That was about it. And then uh, we never really talked about it. About a year later, I brought it up again. So now we're in 2012 because all of our friends who are getting married is like, why aren't you getting married? You have a child. You have to do this for your child. You have to get married. You have to do this. You know, even one of our friends who was a co-sponsor of the bill in New York State Assembly, and he was like, I didn't fight for your family and for your rights to get married for you not to get married. I asked Kevin, I asked him again. I said, what do you think? He goes, yeah, you guys should get married. And he then he said, don't judges marry people. And I kind of knew where he was headed with this. And so I just asked him, I said, would you like to meet the judge that finalized your adoption? And he said, yeah, yeah, that would be really cool. And so he went into school and I went home and I contacted family court, Manhattan family court. Two hours later, someone got back and said, we've gotten your message to the judge and she would be delighted to officiate your marriage. And so we 
ended up being back in not her courtroom, but her office on July 13th, 2012. We're walking into her office and uh, we had my parents were there. Uh, my brother and sister were there and a few close friends were there and they sort of sort of all entered first. And then me, Danny and Kevin followed behind and Kevin saw the judge and he put out his hand to shake her hand. And she just looked at him and said, can I have a hug? And you know, everyone just turned around to watch the two of them greet each other in that embrace. And it was, it was remarkable. You know, soon enough, we were in our positions to get married. Kevin was best man for both of us. So he had, I think, your rings in one pocket and my rings in another pocket. <laughs> and we exchanged vows and uh, we got married by the woman who made us the family to begin with, with our you know, 11-year-old son right by our side. This selfless, unconditional love that you did not know existed prior to becoming a dad. That's what Kevin provided to me. The, the role of being a dad has been the most important, the most meaningful, most transformative roles in my life. I've had the greatest joy being a dad to Kevin, to witness him growing up, it's unexplainable that we're, we're, we still pinch ourselves mm, that mm -hmm. this happened to us and that we're parents and that it turned out the way it turned out. So there are days when I think, wow, that was just pure luck of being in the right place at the right time that Danny was. And then there's another part of me that says, um, no, there was a force greater than us guiding us through all of this. It's really been interesting to see with Kevin how his mindset has been shaped by this as well because you know when he entered college he wanted to be able to as an opportunity arose for him to do something for him to always say yes and then we said that will serve you so well if you open yourself up to those opportunities and to see what can happen and just let it unfold from there That doc from the CBC's McKenna Hadley Burke and the moment that I was on the edge of my seat was when Pete says, you're choosing a baby over our relationship? And Danny says, I'm not. I want you to do this with me. But if you're not ready, I understand. And that said so much about Danny's belief in fate, but also it says a lot about the strength of their relationship. And that's what I wanted to ask McKenna more about. McKenna. Hi, Duncan. Um, how did you find out about the Subway Baby? Hmm. Well, uh, my mom knows I'm always looking for interesting stories. So one morning I opened my email and she sent me a link to the story and she's like, I think you're really going to like this. Also, she shared it with me because I have two moms. And so here was this representation of a family with same-sex parents. And so we tend to send stories like that back and forth. And I think also stories that center familial love don't come up that often, uh, especially feel-good stories like that. Oftentimes, they're more centered around heartbreak or political decisions that hurt families like mine that have same-sex parents. And so here was this story that was just completely centered around love, was entirely joyful. 
uh, and surprising. And I think, you know, we both kind of just teared up reading for the first time. It struck me as I listened to the documentary that the, the fact that these were two dads isn't really addressed in the documentary. Mm. It's, it's just kind of normal. And, and, mm. and why, why was that important to, to you to do it that way? I think having a story like this be entirely about the adventure and the surprise and the magic of what's unfolding is central to the story. I think taking away what to some people is shocking, you know, having two dads or uh, having a same-sex partnership, to me, that was normalcy growing up. So telling this story any other way um, or making, you know, the fact that it was two dads central to someone like me, that's not the interesting part. That's not the shocking part. That's not the part that I leaned into because, you know, growing up, if somebody had said, what's it like having two moms? It was like, well, what's it like having, you know, heterosexual parents? What's it like having two parents? What's it like having one parent? So having that story also portray that as something unsurprising uh, was really important to me. And it's all wrapped up in a love story, which I love. Um, I understand that uh, the story of the Subway Baby is now a children's book. Is that right? That's right. That's right. Actually, that was part of the reason their story resurfaced, because they, they wrote this children's book. And I was thinking this morning about, you know, I only think I had a couple of children's books that represented diverse families when I was little. And having these be more accessible to you know, kids who are in, uh, you know, heterosexual families, kids who are not in conventional heterosexual family structures, being able to have those books on the shelves to normalize what maybe is unfamiliar or familiar. It was really helpful when I was little. I, I turned to that, those few books that I did have that were like that uh, a lot. Um, the other big question I had is, is how is Kevin doing? You know, I never got to talk to Kevin. I really, really wanted to. I'd hoped to. I'd said to Pete and Danny when we were in the interview, I said, you know, I'd love to talk to to Kevin as well. And uh, he was in university doing his exams at the time. And he'd already told his dads, you know, I'm supportive, but I, I just don't want to do any uh, media interviews at this time. And they were totally understanding of that. And so they said, you know, this isn't Kevin's time to talk right now. But I did say, I even was like, you know, well, if he ever wants to reach out, you know, just person to person. Person as somebody with two moms, I'd love to like, you know, anytime I get to talk to somebody else about that dynamic of growing up. But for now, I know he, uh, his parents are protecting his space to be able to go through university and focus on that. And it's so great to hear that he's accepted that it's his dad's story to tell. But at the moment that they're, they're saying, that's okay, Kevin, you know, you don't need to be part of it either. Maybe it will change for him down the line if he decides that this is a story that he also wants to share. But I do think we we come to our stories on our own time. McKenna, it's a wonderful piece. Thanks for sharing it with us. Thanks so much, Duncan. And that's it for this week's Hell of a Story. The show was produced by Michelle Parisi, who, I should tell you, is also a sucker for a love story, and me. We're part of the CBC Audio Doc Unit. Special thanks this week to our friends at Tapestry, Armin Bali and Rosie Fernandez. I'm Duncan McHugh. Jimmy Gwitch, thanks for listening.
You've been listening to an episode from the new CBC podcast, Hell of a Story, hosted by Duncan McHugh and produced by me. And produced by Duncan also. Wherever you're listening to this right now, I'd love it if you could just track down Hell of a Story, download all the past episodes, hit subscribe so you can get a fresh one every week. And uh, you can also find us on the CBC Listen app on Spotify, probably everywhere. CBC Podcasts, Hell of a Story. I'm Michelle Parisi. Thanks for listening. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.